constructed, what decisions were made were not made by him. They were made by his father-in-law, made by his wife. Um, he had no child quota. The, the fact that we have 12 grandkids, the fact that there were 13 children born, are really more the um, result of envy and rivalry between women rather than any kind of personal interference or desire or will on the part of Jacob. We discussed also that Jacob's first wife, Leah, is the one that gives us our messianic line, our priestly line, and our royal line. They all kind of come from her being the first wife, even in that first batch of four children. Um, and we kind of left off with that when having ran out of time. And, that's, and uh, what we want to go back and look at is that we talked briefly about airship, why it was important for um, these women to have sons, why, Rebecca, why Rachel would still feel that it was important to have children of her own, even though it was clear that Jacob had children. What I want to look at um, before we go to number six is that although Jacob had both Rachel and Leah. And although Jacob preferred Rachel, only Leah is buried with our ancestors. When Abraham buys a, a, a lot for every, everyone to be buried in, Abraham buries Sarah. And Abraham is buried alongside of Sarah. Keturah, who's the final wife, isn't buried in, in that space. Hagar also is not buried in that space. When um, Isaac is born, Isaac, the son of Sarah, is born, Isaac buries his only wife, Rebecca, in the space where his mother is. Isaac himself is buried in that family plot. When it comes time for Jacob to bury the women who bore his children, Rachel, although she's his favorite, is not taken to that space. It is Leah, his first wife, that is buried among his grandmother and his mother. Leah, and just Leah, goes there. And Jacob is buried alongside her. So these ideas of how polygamy functions, how even in these spaces, um, how wives are understood, the differences between being a wife and being a concubine and being a surrogate and all these other things um, get played out in, in a lot of different ways. And they carry a lot of different implications, even into how you are cared for as a widow, how you, what your security is as a, as a mother, um, and even and so how you're understood in death, as you see with these, these um, examples that we've already gone over. Our sixth position brings us to Moses. There's the assumption that Moses had two wives. The narrative surrounding Moses is a bit muddy. Like, there's really no way to go around that. We, we see in um, Exodus, that 
Moses marries a woman named Zipporah. We're given a lot about Zipporah. We know where she lives, who her father is, what he does, what she does, um, how many kids she has, how many children she has, what their names are. We're given a lot of information about Zipporah, how old he is, you know, what, where, what's going on in the time of Moses' life when he meets her. It's a very, the setting is, is very um, detailed. There's a lot of information about Moses and Zipporah. Um, we even find that when Moses receives his commission, that he has to go and um, redeem Israel from captivity in Egypt, he's with Zipporah, and it's Zipporah that executes this circumcision for his son that basically saves the wrath of the Most High. They say that the, the probably an angel that met him was going to execute him because this covenant was not um, completed in his son. His son was not circumcised, which he understands to be a focal point of Hebrew culture, the physical the physical manifestation of our covenant, and his son did not have that protection. I can go into why those things are important, but that's not really part and parcel of this particular discussion. Um, but Zipporah plays that role. And we understand that Zipporah is the daughter of a priest. She understands um, a lot about what's necessary, so that, even so that she understood what was needed in this case. But then all of a sudden, in Numbers, we're introduced to um, some kind of problem with Moses' Moses's wife, who's identified as an Ethiopian. Because we have so much information on Zipporah, and it's so well-established that Zipporah is definitely a Midianite, for there to be a discussion about this Ethiopian is problematic. Where does this Ethiopian come from? We know that back in Exodus, Sephora gets sent away. She gets sent away so, the Most High, so that Moses can be about, you know, the Most High's business and um, do what he needs to do to free Israel from Egypt. But she comes back. She reunites with her husband in the wilderness. So the poor is on the scene. The poor, the Midianites, the priest's daughter is on the scene. And then there's just this random mention of an Ethiopian, which becomes problematic. There are those people who believe that the poor is indeed this Ethiopian person, that she's called an Ethiopian in a derogatory sense, because Ethiopia just means black things, it just means dark. Um, Ethiopians tended to be um, less refined than all the other people in that area. And um, so there's some discussion about, oh, maybe she was just being called this Ethiopian, but this was in fact the Sephora. Uh, what's complicated is that there's a account by Josephus who says that Moses does, in fact, marry a Cushite um, princess from Cush. She's an Ethiopian, and he marries her during one of the campaigns um, he sent on on behalf of Egypt. But this happens in his 20s. Like, apparently this happens before he, free, he, he has his 40 years old and he 
attacks the overseer. So he would have already been married by the time he gets to Zipporah, and yet our Hebrew text makes no mention of any marriages for Moses prior to Zipporah, who we have so much information about. So it's um, it's muddy. It's muddy because we have these, we have the account of Josephus. This also a very romantic account that speaks about the love of this woman for Moses that our Hebrew text completely ignores. And then we have this anonymous woman. Just the only way we know about her is some salty discussion about about her from Miriam and Aaron. So it's it's not really something that we can conclude decisively because our scriptures don't support it. So there be that doesn't support him having a second woman at all. And she's never mentioned again. Like she's mentioned in no other context. This, I, while we're talking about this, what I do want to bring to your attention is this conversation that Miriam and Aaron are having. Typically. It's reimagined or represented to specifically sisters that Miriam is struck with leprosy because of what she is saying about this Ethiopian woman. But in fact, what the scriptures say is that Aaron and Miriam are, they, they have that conversation, they make that criticism. But then they go on to say that the Most High doesn't speak to just Moses, that the Most High has dealt with both Aaron and Miriam, and Aaron and Miriam are feeling left out. Aaron and Miriam are feeling slighted. Aaron and Miriam are wondering what's so special about Moses. Why does he get to show? Why is everybody making such a big deal about Moses? Why is Moses such a big deal when the Most High has dealt with them also? And that's when the Most High appears. And that's when the most high, so that's when the most high anger is kindled against them. It's because of that statement. Because what they do at that point is they question the most high. They question um, who the most high has placed his favor on. And um, and not because of any discussion about this Kushite. The reason I gave you information earlier about the fact that the poor was the daughter of a priest, the poor does demonstrate some understanding about our covenant and um, our culture and our laws and our expectations is that Zephora is a Midianite, which means she is of the Abraham, Abrahamic line, through Keturah, who is Abraham's last wife. She is familiar with some things he breaks. Her father is a priest. So, then we have Miriam on our side, on the Hebrew side. Miriam is a prostitute. This is not a assumption. We know for a fact that Miriam is a prostitute. We know that the Most High dealt with her specifically. They split the law and the way the, the, and the prophecies, and she had messages through her, which is why she's so upset. This is why she and Aaron, why she is sharing this kind of um, frustration with Aaron, because the Most High has dealt so intimately and given her so much um, responsibility and has tasked her so specifically that she and Aaron are both equally upset that only Moses is having 
a different type of relationship and a different um, reception than they are. But Miriam and this woman's apart are different. Uh, this is what you can pay attention to. Miriam and Zipporah are on different spectrums. Both of them are um, involved in ministry on either side of their respective cultures. And Miriam necessarily does not feel like this woman should be seated among her. She's married to Moses, who's like, you know, obviously head of the head of the the priesthood, even though we know that it later that it actually gets established through Aaron. But at the time Moses is the one who's the apparent leader. And she's married to him. And she's executing all of these things from for our culture, you know, as we see her do earlier. So Miriam Miriam being salty towards the Pura makes more sense than there being this sudden introduction of this miscellaneous person that we've never heard of before. So in conclusion, it's, the supposition is unlikely. It's unlikely that it's a brand new person that no one's ever heard of, but it's not completely impossible if you found during that Moses had a life before he was 40 years old and possibly did marry some Ethiopian, as Josephus implies, and as he implies it in the antiquities of the Jews, and he makes this supposition that Moses took this Kashite wife. I have to get my copy of the antiquities to see why he says that, but I, re- I, I do know that it, it's there. I don't remember the context. Um, only, do you remember anything about Josephus discussing this in the antiquities? Uh, no, not offhand. No, right? I remember. I, I'm just going through my notes about because I didn't really put a lesson together, but I do have my notes on this, and I know that Moses is mentioned by Josephus as having had some kind of marriage in his youth prior to Zephora, for whatever reason, our biblical canon doesn't record, and I don't think that Jasher does either. I don't think any of our other apocryphal books, but I'll look into those. Okay, the eighth, I mean, the seventh is Gideon. Gideon is one of the judges. What is noteworthy about Gideon is that Gideon has 70 sons. So, and it says that he has 70 sons, and that because, and it says because he had several wives. So there's no discussion here. We know for a fact Gideon had many wives. It's not up for debate. We don't have to kind of look at why or how or maybe under what conditions. He had many wives. But he, and he had 70 sons. What happens with this is that Gideon is a judge who is also a warrior. Gideon goes to war. Gideon even has discussions. Is it with Midian? He goes to war with about soil. And we discussed in the first session, we discussed interrogating the paradigm that there are four ways that extended households naturally occur in Hebrew culture. One of those is if a warrior is um, a victor in a sanctioned war. The Mosai tells you to go to war, and you are victorious. You are entitled to the spoil. That is what is written in our in our records. So warriors who are victorious from war are entitled to spoil. Spoil includes 
anything of value, including women. Gideon went to war. So if Gideon had several wives, it's not because he was in his living room and wanted to. Tuesday, he felt like it. His wife didn't do the dishes. He thinks someone else should do the dishes. Wants someone. That didn't happen. He was a warrior. And um, there's nothing that says that he accumulated these wives in any other way. So, um, so that is a, it's a valid supposition, and it has this cultural clause that it falls under. It falls under warrior just like the cultural clause for Jacob, the cultural clause for Abraham fell, um, fell under surrogacy. Surrogacy was one of the others. Surrogacy, which is um, the decision of the woman. There is the leverage, which is the right of the woman. There is this um, warrior clause for spoil, the right of the warrior. And um, also there's this pagan institution of Kingship, which we come into in, in a moment. First, we're going to go into Elkanah. Do you guys remember who Elkanah was? Elkanah was um, a priest. He was a Levite priest. He was married to Hannah. Hannah was the mother of Samuel. Now, what we know about priests is that priests typically don't have more than one wife. They have the one wife. Whenever there's an argument, about, oh, you really shouldn't have um, more than one wife, the brothers will counter with, that's only for priests. Obviously, you know. Um, Elkin has two wives. This is not debatable. He clearly has two wives. Why he has two wives, it doesn't say. And I'm not going to speculate, but this is what I do know. The law of the leverage is something that all of the all of Israel has to do. The idea is that somewhere it does mention that I mean in our text it does mention that Levites could not marry a harlot or a divorced woman or a widow. But later it is explained, I believe by Ezekiel, that a Levite priest could marry a widow if she was previously married to a priest. So these priests can only marry widows that are also married to priests. So even the Levites are not excused from the leverage. They have to do it as well. So since we have that foreknowledge, we have that background information, it's plausible that Elkna um, does have a second wife under a legitimate cultural clause of the leverage, although it doesn't explain either way. But clearly he does have um, a polygamy relationship with his family. We see that Hannah um, is extremely dissatisfied in this union. She's, and it's not because her husband isn't good to her. It's because this other woman is horrible to her. And again, we see this woman, uh, a woman who desperately wants to have a son. She desperately wants to have a child. And just like Jacob, he says to her, you know, am I not, and he's good to her. Am I not better to you than ten sons? Like, he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why Hannah is, is in so much anguish for this child. 
Well, then and there's no issue of uh, airship for Elsa either because he has children, just not with her. So um, that's with Elsa. I want to ask if anybody has any questions, but one person that is present. Oh, the people. Okay, does anybody have any questions? I don't have any questions right now. I joined in a little late. Okay. Um, where did you come in? I you I think you're talking. Oh my! He disoriented easy. So um, it was about ten minutes ago. Came in about ten minutes ago. Yeah, I heard uh, about Gideon, and just before that. And just before Gideon. Okay. So I was just kind of going through everything because I didn't see anybody. Um, normally, I would pause and ask if there were any questions. Okay, so in the beginning, what we did was we went over, we just basically quickly recapped what happened in the previous session. I don't know if everybody heard that or who was available for the previous session, but we discussed how the Most High is discussed as having had two wives, specifically Judah and Israel. Is there anybody that's currently online that has a question about why that isn't a valid supposition to advocate for Hebrew polygamy and modernity. I heard about all of yesterday. You heard it yesterday. Everybody's good on why that the Most High does not have two wives. Israel and Judah are the one nation that's not two wives. That's not an argument for polygamy. We understand yes. that? Okay. So the cultural concept for Judah for Judah and Israel is not applicable. Um, the New Testament Messiah, who is um, similarly um, identified as someone who is the husband to several churches, similarly churches represent the one body. It's not supposed to, uh, it's, he's not married to several brides. Is that understood? The cultural concept of this um, example is also not applicable. Do you understand and agree with that? I understand what you're. I understand what you're teaching. Yes. So you understand it, but you don't. What was the What was the second part? Yes. Yeah. Okay. The third um, one we went over was about um, Adam. That there are narratives that exist that Adam had a wife prior to Eve. That was the first time I had ever heard. Uh, Anything about that, I found it very interesting, and that's one of the things I'm still uh, pondering. you have a question about that you want to talk about? No, I found it very interesting. I thought um, I, I found it a twist on how we see ourselves as uh, women in Israel. Yeah, her name was Lilith. It, was, it, it is a, a really interesting um Theory. It's a, and there are narratives that belong to other nations that spend a, a great deal of time talking about Lilith and um, what her contributions were and how she had a relationship with Adam and what happened when she separated from paradise and from her husband to be rebellious and to embrace, you know, living among the fallen and the fact that she goes on to um, be spiteful against newborn babies. There's a lot of things that kind of, if you went down that road, 
too far because probably going to put a lot of make a lot of connections. But they don't belong to this conversation. But in terms of Adam and Lilith, even if that's a valid narrative, Lilith existed before Eve, and he wasn't in a polygamous union with Eve, Lilith, and himself. That so the culture concept is not applicable there either. Even if Lilith is an actual factor, and that. Um, in the narrative, right? We totally agree, and uh, I feel like it would be an argument against a lot of what brothers, how brothers view us. I think a lot of women would be called uh, Lilith versus mm-hmm. in reference to Willie Lynch if that story was well known. Ah, that's a good point. That's a good point. It's a good point because right now, right, when they want to express displeasure with us, they call us Eve instead of potentially this rebellious wife who was known as Lilith, who completely, I mean, even the idea of laying beneath him for sex was something she was not. That was actually apparently, according to the narrative, the straw that brought the camel back for her. She that she, she was so against having any subordinate position that even laying in that sexual position was something she was not prepared to do. Right. Yes, thanks. Uh, and then it was Abraham and the whole um, issue of Sarah not being his sibling or half sibling and Hagar not being understood by anybody in these narratives as Abraham's wife. Abraham doesn't call her his wife. Sarah doesn't call her his wife. The angel of the Lord does not call her his wife. The Most High himself doesn't acknowledge her as a wife. This doesn't happen at all. In verse 3, it says that um, Sarah intends to give her to Abraham to be a wife, but we discussed also that in Hebrew, there's no distinction between the word woman or wife. The, the Hebrew text is only giving you Isha or Ayasha. It's not giving you wife. Wife is, a, is the construction of the translator. It's not what it says in the Hebrew. And even after verse 3, there's absolutely nothing that supports it. She gets no witnesses. There are four people, that, there are four uh, young people who get introduced to this account, and none of them call her his wife. Um, is that understood? That's totally understood, yes. So we go to Jacob. We did Jacob. We talked about Jacob and Leah. We talked about... The fact that this is the part where you came in is when we talked about Jacob, that's right before Gideon. Okay. We talked, that was when we talked about how um, Leah and Rachel engage in envy and rivalry, and that's why we have all of these children that get introduced into the family and these women who get introduced into the into the marriage model. It's because Rachel and Leah engage in rivalry. It's not because Jacob decides, I don't have enough children. Jacob never has that discussion. Jacob never has that light bulb moment. Jacob has four children. It's Rachel that has no children. Rachel is envious of Leah and wants more children. Leah, leaves bearing, can't handle the fact that the sister not only is the favorite, but now she's having sons. Now she's having children by way of her maid. So she throws in her mate, it's competition time. So this has nothing to do with so the argument of, oh, it's not for polygamy, 
we wouldn't have 12 branches. That's not entirely accurate. That's not really a fair thing to say because it's not polygamy that causes us to have um, 12 branches and a daughter. It's the fact that these two women engage in envy and rivalry that give us 12 branches and a daughter. If Rachel had been fine and satisfied and celebrated the fertility of her sisters, we may not have 12 branches. She wouldn't have gone into competition. We would have had the first. This what gives us the priesthood, the messianic line, and the, and the line of kings. Just Leah, all by her onesies, gives us those things. But Rachel is envious. Rachel wants to be down. Rachel's not satisfied with the fact that her husband loves her and dotes on her. She has nothing else to prove. But there's an envy and rivalry that gets introduced. This is her idea that... Um, if it was something the Most High didn't want, the Most High would have made it unlawful, which is really weird for them to put it in this particular context because in this particular instance, it is unlawful. It, it later becomes 100% against the law to marry sisters. This is the one example that makes the least of – it's one of the examples that makes the least amount of sense to me because everything that happens in here is wrong, everything. Everything about this particular marriage model is is is, is a counter narrative to how Israel was supposed to conduct itself. We, we don't we don't want to advocate for women having envy and rivalry amongst each other. How no. can we say, yeah, we say oh, well, this has to be the right thing to do because if not for this, we wouldn't have twelve branches. So yes, we have to have polygamy because that's how we got twelve branches. Dude, what we got some branches was these two women were fighting and bickering. So what you're really telling us is that what we have to do is fight and bicker and be envious and have rivalry because that's how we got some branches. Exactly. And that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to encourage my sisters to to to, to engage in envy, to be envious of one another. I'm not going to encourage my sisters to go into rivalry with one another because that's how we got some branches. Does that make any sense? No. But that's what they tell us, right? What you say? I'm sorry. Also, what Jacob does is Jacob marries two sisters. Can we? Can a man marry two sisters? No, not not One hundred percent against the law. So, using Jacob and how Jacob conduct, how Jacob's family model gets constructed as and evidence of polygamy being the right thing to do, you can't do any of the things that we're talking about here. We can't have jealous and envious women. We can't have rivalry between women. And we can't marry sisters. Nothing Jacob did can we do. All of it is wrong. This is a terrible example. Now, but in terms of how women are introduced outside of the legitimate wives, um, the way women are introduced into this marriage model is by way of surrogacy. Because what are the two legitimate wives, is Leah and Rachel? Um, they introduce surrogates for rivalry purposes, but they still introduce surrogates. That's how we get Bilal and Zippah. They still this um this cultural concept of surrogacy, just like with Sarah. Sarah gives us the cultural concept of surrogacy as well, and um, we ended that portion with the fact that. Leah, although there are two legitimate wives, only Leah is buried with 
Virginia only takes his first wife, Leah, to be buried with his grandmother and his mother. She's the only one that is buried with the ancestors. Rachel doesn't get that distinction either to any of the um, other surrogates. Likewise, Sarah is the only one that is buried, not to Torah, who later is identified as a legitimate wife, and Hagar, who never is. And, um, then we went into Moses and the fact that this Moses Moses marriage model is very muddled because we have Zipporah and then we have this unnamed, anonymous, kind of inserted Ethiopian that Miriam is salty over. Like Miriam and Aaron have criticisms about this Ethiopian woman who we just kind of just kind of pops out of nowhere. So either, um, you know, we don't know what happened. We don't know what she came All we know is that the only other thing that um, kind of substantiates this person as a second person and not just another showing of Zipporah is that Josephus, or the Josephus in, I believe, the Antiquity of the Jews, I'm going to check that. Um, discusses her and says that Moses did have this Ethiopian queen or Ethiopian princess that he married way before he meets Zipporah. So our Hebrew text just completely ignores her, but Josephus somehow knows all about her. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's muddled because it's just there's no way to to reconcile. I will continue to, like, I will look into it to see what kind of, because um, it's disturbing for the scriptures to not have anything on it and for Josephus to know so much about it. So um, there, whatever is in the middle, whatever the missing link is between that, I'll find it. So the substance mm-hmm. here is not invalid, but it's unlikely. It's unlikely. Um, it's just unlikely. And it doesn't fall within any of the four categories that, is expressed other in other places. It just doesn't make any. There, there's just no room for it. It doesn't. It doesn't reconcile well. But I can't dismiss it. I won't tell you that he wasn't. He did it because I can't cleanly prove that. But the scriptures don't support it. That's all I can competently say. The scriptures competently say the scripture doesn't support it. So okay. With Gideon, Gideon is a judge. And uh, he's also a warrior. Gideon has like 70 kids, like 70 sons. What's interesting about Gideon, he has um, several wives. The scripture plainly says he has several wives. But Gideon is also a warrior, which is plainly within the four criteria that we already established that we know for a fact that if a warrior returns victorious from war, he's entitled to spoil. So the fact that he has several women is not something that um, goes against or is counter to that. And still falls in line with that. Interestingly enough, Gideon does really weird things. He does really shady things. Even though he has these wives who are probably from spoil, he gives all his sons and daughters to other nations. All the sons get married off to other nations. All the daughters get married off to other nations. The one thing that we know is you don't do that. Gideon does that. That's what Gideon does with these children. He doesn't keep them within Israel. He marries them out, including his daughters. Marries them out. So this is, it's, a, it's a really 
it's, it's another behavior that you just don't do. You won't, you can't really look at Gideon and say, we're going to do this because Gideon did it. Past precedence, well, Gideon did it. Okay, but Gideon was the warrior, one. And two, Gideon also gave all his children away to other nations. You can't do that. Not that that lasted long, because the one son, he has a son, Abimelech. Abimelech tries to be king. When he gets the people to agree to make him king, he kills all of his siblings. them. So these are not surviving people. I mean, this is, he had all those sons for nothing. So they're dead. They're gone. They doesn't mean they don't get to live. He can't kill them. And then we go on to Elkna, who's the king's Hannah's, um, uh, Hannah's husband. He does have another wife who's miserable to Hannah. He also has children. Ultimately, he does have a son with Hannah. Hannah prays for him. And do we know who Hannah's son is? Who Hannah's son becomes? Um, yes. Can't remember the name, but yes, I do. For the king, he becomes. He becomes. He becomes the very last. Yes. Becomes the very last judge. Um. It's interesting that when we look at the judges, we know that the judges were, it's a pretty good segue to do it this way, because when we look at the judges, we don't hear a lot about why until there's some kind of problem. Like, even with Sam, like with with, with Jester, right? We know he has to have been married because he has a daughter. No, we don't know anything about her or this marriage or this union or how many. We just know he has one daughter and there's nobody else. But there's no real discussion about his wife. When we um, think, was, you know, Deborah obviously is married to the one man. And then we have um, Samson. And even though Samson has multiple marriages, he doesn't have them at the same time. They're consecutive. One, he's married to one, that relationship ends, he marries another. So we find that, but and again, we hear about that because the marriages were so long. <laughs> they were they were bad examples of of union. So we hear about that there, and then we hear about Gideon having multiple wives and then multiple children, and why that didn't work out well either. And then we have, then we have Samson. And we know that Sam, oh not Samson, but Samuel. We know that Samuel has sons. He has nothing on his wife. We know, I think he has two sons. Is that right, Only He has two sons? Only is she still here? I'm sorry, what'd you say? Samuel has two sons? Did Samuel what? Samuel had two sons, right? Yeah, he did. He had two sons. Yeah, so Samuel has two sons. There's no discussion about his wives or wife or how many. That's just not reporting to the, to the narrative. But what is important to the narrative, or at least to this part of the discussion and for our purposes, is that when we had judges, we had judges at a time when we had no kings. So that would mean that we had priests during this period, but we had no king. Nobody was a king. That's not how we ran Israel. When Israel was doing, even even when Israel had committed themselves to being as off as possible. We still had no king. We still had the most high was our king. 
We had people who restored order, and we had our priests who were responsible for our rites and rituals and and things of that nature. And the scriptures say, when we're looking at judges, that this is a time when we had no kings. We had no kings, and we had judges. So the idea and the concept and understanding of kings is known to us. Understand what kings are, how they function, and what they do. But we didn't have one. But we do have rules for what we would do, how we imagine kings should behave. Do we know what Hebrews believe a king should do in terms of how many wives a king should have? I, I don't do that. Can you give me an idea, please? In Deuteronomy 17, we're told, I believe it is Deuteronomy 17, 17? Yeah, I know it's in Deuteronomy. I believe it is 17. Deuteronomy 17, you know 17, 17 states, Neither shall he, okay, well, it's about a king. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. So when the Most High is, when Israel is thinking about what a king is supposed to be like, what a king is supposed to do, this is what we're told. In 1715, thou shalt, shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee. So 17 is giving us all the, the ways that a king would be uh, established. Mm-hmm. And in 17, it says, well, okay, you may not say king. If this, um, 15 is, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren, shall thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses unto himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt. To the end that he should multiply horses for so much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. 17. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So scripture here is showing that having desiring more than your portion has these catastrophic, you know, um, consequences. You're not going to multiply women to yourself. You don't need to have that kind of excess. You don't need to multiply silver or gold for yourself. That's greed. You don't need to go and multiply horses. The multiplying horses, the idea. No, it doesn't mean that you can have one horse. Why would you multiply? Do you understand why you would have to multiply horses? Why would a king need to multiply horses? Do you know? I have no idea. For war. For war, yes, for something. Who said that? Who said well, What did you just say? I, I thought I heard someone give the answer. For war. For war. Right, the idea of engaging in in war, being involved in warfare, multiplying horses is also another 
uh, way of demonstrating status. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I, it's like right now everybody has, we talk about the nations having its arms race, having missiles and nuclear bombs and such, multiplying yeah. those kinds of um, um, features of war. Uh, the Israelite king is not going to do that. Israelite, uh, uh, our people would not want that or shouldn't have that. A king of our people wouldn't do those things because he wouldn't want to demonstrate those kinds of um, predilections. But why would would he say that, though? Because if you if we're, as a nation, following Torah, the father is, is going to take care of, of his nation. Right. Well, the Most High tells, this is the Most High um, tell Abraham, Abraham functions in my, and you correct me if you disagree, that Abraham functions similarly in the terms of king, but there's still, we don't replace the Most High. There's never the indication that the Most High is replaced. And isn't he, when he's going to have a nation of, we know that he's going to be of the line of kings because, Ishmael becomes many princes, right? He's nothing more than princes, but the Isaac is supposed to be where kingdoms will come from, versus Ishmael, who will be um, among princes. So that kind of distinction is shown um, between Abraham's seed, anyway, and it's it's not meant to. In my and from my position, I don't think that it's meant to replace the Most High. Most High's authority, because even here he's dictating how that's going to go down. Nothing is being dictated to him; he's still dictating all of the rules. I think kingship is being um, spoken of completely differently than it's later introduced in Samuel when Israel decides to reject the Most High. When the Most High isn't establishing anything, but rather Israel is initiating and basically taking the Most High off his throne to install someone else. What's on that, Lenny? Lenny? Yes. Did you hear my response to that? Um, part of it. Well, what are your thoughts on it? Well, what are you? What are your thoughts on the question? What question was it? I'm <laughs> why sorry. Why does it even be introduced by the Most High? Like there's a in Deuteronomy, there's actually where the Most High is saying, um, if there was a king, this is how a king behaves. This is what a king would do. This is he'd be of your people. He wouldn't be a stranger, and he wouldn't do this, this, and this. Uh-huh. Why would the Most High even have those discussions or even set up that criteria when he's king? Um, because he, he's like you said, he's still controlling. The Father's still controlling everything. But Israel, what they did was they wanted somebody that they can see. They wanted somebody that they felt was tam- tangible, so they can see and um. The father was still controlling everything. But the reason why he set up those rules is because he he already understands the man's um, 
man's heart. When a person becomes in power, they they feel that they're above judgment. They feel that they're above law. <clears throat> and sometimes people get prideful. But he was still always in control. As long as everybody understood, you know, he he just gave the people what they desired, what they wanted from Samuel. Right, that's what happens in Samuel. I think the sister that was asking was just really curious that even before we articulated um, that we would like to have a king, the Most High had already stipulated what a king would be like. Yeah, it just sounds like it would be a mortal king. So the Most High is already saying it. It sounds almost permissive. He's already saying that there will be this kingship, and this is how kings will conduct themselves. Is that correct, Sister? Am I representing your question correctly? There was a sister that asked that question. Right? I told you to make that. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Okay, well, in either event, um, that was the question asked. These are the answers that we have um, to address that. Is there anyone that has a question about the way we are responding so far to it? Not only said, what happens in at the end of Judges is that Israel decides that Israel isn't satisfied with the Most High being our king. And we want to have a physical, tangible king. We literally say we want to be like everybody else. We want We want to be like other nations. So from the point that we say we want to be like other nations, we are necessarily entering into pagan territory. Mm. Mm. Other nations is necessarily pagan territory. Everything we do after this is pagan. Yeah. We establish a king, pagan. We're not doing anything like this at this point. The most High tells Samuel, don't worry about it. They didn't reject you. They rejected me. Yeah. Do we establish a king? We do what? We rejected the Most High. We rejected. Everything we do now. This is important. Don't forget this. This is important. Don't skip over. Don't go past it. We we rejected the Most High. We are not supposed to do this. We are saying. He even takes the time to say, "Listen, tell them what will happen." If they do this, tell them what the consequences will be. Samuel comes back and tells them, listen, a king is going to um, have have um, control of your lands. He's going to turn your daughters into confectionaries. He's going to do all these things. And we're like, cool, we're with it. We don't care. And the most times, like, you know what, if you don't care, go for it. I'm, I'm letting you know what it's going to be like. You have rejected me. So he turns us over to our own devices. We get Saul. From Saul, we get David. And Saul did all of those things that he said 
should not be done. <laughs> and David has perpetual war. We say war. With David, we have perpetual war. Yep. It's interesting, though, that Saul, who has one wife and later one concubine, isn't the one that we really get confronted with. Yeah. Um, we have a lot of discussions around Saul when talking about polygamy. Like, no one really wants to point out Saul. But Saul doesn't really make a big deal about it. We don't hear about this concubine until David sacrifices all of, um, all of her children. So, you know, the Philistines want to distinguish. Actually, the Philistines just want to have beef, and David is like, what do I have to do to not have beef with you? And they're like, they settle on killing off everybody in Saul's house. With the exception, of course, of Jonathan's, you know, son. Everybody else dies. All of his grandsons, they have to die. And his, and his um, his children by the concubine also die. Okay, so, um, for anybody else, our number nine brings us to David. David is the, the we know what King David is. King is David. Do we know? David is king number three. King number three. Saul is our our first king. Saul dies in battle. There's one son that survives. That son becomes king. So that's how it works. That's how pagan institutions work. Your heir is your son. Your son, you know, inherits that. He becomes king, and that's how it works. Now, that's not, now, how does that work in Hebrew culture? Is it definitely that way in Hebrew culture that you, just by being, like, born, you get to be heir of something? Mm-hmm. No, it's not guaranteed that way. The robot intercedes and disrupts and upsets that idea all the time, all the time. It's supposed to be a certain way, but the most high comes and intercedes. And uh, even if we, we talked about earlier that Moses had two sons, right? Moses was, at the time, our our leader. Correct. Abraham, uh, Moses was the one that led us out of Egypt. He was the one that was um, leading basically everything to the to the point that Miriam and Aaron and Aaron were salty about it. So who inherits um, after Moses? He has two sons. Which one of them inherited? Neither one. Neither one. Neither one inherits the mantle of Moses. Not one. Who gets it? Aaron's son. Joshua. Oh, I'm sorry. Joshua, yes, yes. Joshua is the one that inherits um, Moses' position. The priesthood is established through Aaron. When we talk about the priesthood, we talk about the Aaronic priesthood. We don't talk about the Mosaic priesthood. That's not a thing. Right? Right. So, no matter how much we don't like Saul, Saul has a whole bunch of sons. The one that's left standing inherits the throne because that's how it works in pagan nations. What to do? By the time Saul's son has inherited the throne, David is already in exile. David is in exile in Hebron. Judah has defected, so Saul's son is not king of the United King of, of the United Kingdom anymore. So the kingdom is the United Judah has. Affected, and they have made David 
king elsewhere. But he is not king over all of the branches. He's only king over Judah. Saul's son is the legitimate king over the nation of, of Israel. When his son dies, David takes over. David, yeah, his son is, is murdered by people on David's side. David takes over. So David becomes the third king. And he, in this way, reunites Israel. That's the first reunification of Israel. It gets reunified a couple of times. Israel splits more than once, even though there's only one split that we are commonly taught about. I think that's really because the brothers only know about the one split. They only discuss the one split. But it splits more than once. It's actually split because, like I said, um, all 12 branches are not unified. Judah defects. Judah defects and, and David is king somewhere else. Now, now during the time that David is in exile, he's going to accumulate women. Before he goes into exile, he's married to the one woman. Who is he married to? I know you sisters know who you guys know who he was married to. Right? He was Michael, uh, Michael. Right, he's married to Michael. He was originally given her sister, but he successfully marries the youngest daughter, Michael. Which is interesting that it goes down that way. First daughter, then second daughter, similar to how Jacob got to how LeBron married off his daughters, first daughter, then second daughters. Saul does the same thing. First daughter is the second daughter. Merab doesn't get successfully married to David. She winds up married to someone else. Micah, who is the purpose initiate successfully snags David. David, his wife, gets exiled into Hebron. Judah father because Judah's loyal like that. So David. Now, in Samuel, do we know how many wives David gets while he's in Hebron? It's okay to tell me. Now, you tell me, no, I can keep going. Okay. <laughs> So he has one wife sitting at home. She saves his life. He forgets all about her. I'm a little salty about that, but you know that's my thing. For for David as a king, David as a warrior, as a patient servant after Bathsheba, amazing, amazing man. Domestic David, that period where David is between uh, Micah and Bathsheba, yeah, I'm not a fan. Let's see what scripture says about David and he's in Hebron. The second Samuel, Samuel is um, accounting for us. Oh, David. Second Samuel, the second chapter, the second verse, tells us that David went thither and his two wives offer. Ahinoam and the Israelitess and Abigail, Nabal's wife. Now, do we know who Abigail was? I don't remember. Abigail, even though Second Samuel uh, introduces these two women as his wives, you notice that Samuel doesn't 
doesn't make the opportunity to, to slip in and that Abigail was somebody else's wife first. Abigail is the widow of Nabal. Nabal was a person who refused to uh, pay what he owed, and David was about to when Abigail interceded and basically saved the household because Nabal was being arrogant and he was being disrespectful to David. And Abigail intercedes. Later, Nabal is punished by him all the time because he's just a kid and he dies. So she's a widow. Before his body even gets cold, David finds out about it and snags Abigail and makes her his wife. She's not covered anymore. She's a widow. Goes for it. The other woman, the Jezreelite, is said to have been a, a princess at some point. So um, likely that that's a marriage similar to the kind of marriages that Solomon later has which are contract marriages, and we'll discuss that when we get to Solomon. Solomon is um, our tenth and final point for this discussion. But he has these two wives. He has um, Ahinoam and he has um, Adam. By the end of his time in um, Hebron, Hebron gives us the summation of all the women and David has accumulated during his separation away from the wife, the same advice that he never went back for that I am talking about personally. But um, this is what they say about David. Second Samuel, this is the third chapter and the second verse. As David was son born unto Hebron, in Hebron, and his firstborn was Ammon. You know, Ammon is the one that later decides that his sister's you know, irresistible and just rapes her was Ammon of Achilles, the Jesuitess. And his second is Kiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal. Pay attention to how um, Samuel identifies the wives of David. Interesting. I found it interesting. I don't know if you guys have paid attention to it or ever saw it, but this is how Samuel delineates who these women are and how he positions them in David's house. So the first one is the Jezreelites. The second one is the wife of Nabal. The third son is Absalom, the son of Micah, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur. She's the daughter of a king. She's a princess. The fact that um, all of these princes, because David's a king at this point, all of these princes, their mothers are named by name. That's a big thing because and the fact that our scrolls have a tendency to not mention women by name as whole, the fact that um, Samuel is making that distinction, taking that time and giving us these things, have significance. And it has something to do with scarcity. Uh, it has something to do with inheritance. It has something to do with the fact that we're dealing with um, and locks and the like. But inheritance, again, is something that I need to be discussing during the next symposium when she gets into airship. 
likely spend time on why, especially in these particular situations, women are named by name. The, who these kings marry and who the mother of these heir apparent is something that is very carefully chronicled by the tribes at, at this time. They're very, very careful to tell you who is the mother of whom, even you know, in a time and in a space where women aren't necessarily understood by men. Okay, so uh, that's the third son, Absalom. The fourth son, Azanajah, and um, of the son of Haggis, and the fifth, Pesetiah, the son of Abitha, and the sixth Ephraim by Elga, David's wife. These were born in these were born to David in Hebron. Now, of the six women that were just mentioned, did anybody think there was anything peculiar about how they were described by Samuel? Did anybody think about that? Uh-oh. Did you guys have your Bibles with you? Are you are you reading along at all? I'm not reading along because I can't read. Um, there are six women mentioned. Each of them are mentioned in terms of who their fathers were, who their husbands were, where they were from, except in one case. There's only one case where neither father nor nation nor husband is mentioned. Only one time. Did you notice that? Only one time that happened? There's only one woman that's actually called David's wife. Okay. Which was that? She was called the sixth one, Ezra, David's wife. Everybody else is... Uh, Nehem is the Jezreelitess. Um, Abigail is the Baal's wife. Micah is the daughter of Tamai, the king of God. These people, but Elga is David's wife. That's how David and how Samuel um, identifies. I have no idea why. I don't know what the purpose is or why he makes that distinction. I just think that it's interesting that he did, and I wanted to bring it to your attention because it's there. I, I can't assign any meaning to it because it's not explained why she does it, but she does do it, and it gets overlooked and it doesn't get discussed, but she does do it. So um, I wanted to show you, first of all, the fact that there's a switch from what the Most High thinks is ideal, how the Most High describes a Hebraic leadership, and then we see that a pagan institution gets established, and that institution is the institution of kings. Under this institution of kings, we get Saul, who engages in what could be called polygamy, um, because he has a a legitimate wife and he has a concubine. And then there's his son, who we don't hear too much about, that's important, because then the uh, third 
king is David, and David is the one that we hear the most about. Oh, David had, you know, X amount of wives. David had eight wives? Was it eight the final count? Because we have the six that are in Hebron. We have Michael, the first wife. And we have um, Bathsheba, which is where he ends his uh, collection of women. He starts with Bathsheba. It would be good too when for when I do the airship um conference. Hopefully that'll be soon. If you guys would read um the the books of Kings and Chronicles, because as Sister Mayana is stating, those there's an importance to why that is happening. To say the and so and his son's name was so and so, and her and his mother's name was such and such, and she was from this tribe or her father was this from this tribe. It is very important. Okay. Kings and Chronicles? Kings and Chronicles, yes. Okay. Yeah, Kings and Chronicles, it sounds like that's not hard to write down. It's really super extra hard to read. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really, really is. Don't write that down because it's going to be easy. That's not going to be a one-day stay. That's not going to be a real train. No, it's definitely not going to be a one thing, th- day thing, but it will be still good to just read over it so you can get the sense of it, even if you don't quite truly understand it, because um, it takes a lot of time to go through those um, the genealogy of those kings. Yeah, yeah. Chronicles will have you pop in Xanax. Tell me right now. Tell me right now. It was because I, I did it, and it was not fun. It was not was enough. I I think that my Bible suffered from pen marks and highlighters and wait what who is really because they don't, it's not even for for it to be a genealogy it's not consecutive at all it's really they jump around a lot and they change names on you you have to really pay attention so just go ahead and read it but do so fully prepared. Need Xanax or some really quiet space. Don't do it when you have all of your children. Have a conversation with your husband or someone who is going to take care of those children so you can spend time with that because there's absolutely no way you can have your attention split while going through Chronicles or Kings. But I will tell you this when you get through Chronicles and Kings, You'll understand Isaiah. Those of you who are who who have a lot of questions about Isaiah four, Isaiah three, understanding what the kings are doing and how things are being played out, and understanding who is doing what when will answer a lot of questions. A lot of the things that I'm not going to say, brothers. A lot of the things that people who uh, are sharing information with us share with us and get away with is because we don't like to touch Isaiah. We don't like to touch first and second kings. We as sisters kind of shy away from those more, those thicker texts. But for example, um, like I'm doing this huge study on Jezebel because I'm completely sick to death of hearing um, people randomly throw Jezebel around like Jezebel wasn't a real person and didn't actually have a place in our historical text. Um, for example, how many of you have heard that, that Jezebel is 
attributed to like the fall of Israel. Like, if not for Jezebel, Ahab would have never turned away. Like she's responsible for turning Israel away from um, the Most High and introducing paganism to Israel through her marriage to Ahab. Like that's what she did. This is not how we we are introduced and how uh, Jezebel is is told to us that Jezebel marries this weak guy. Ahab is this great Israelite king, and he hooks up with this horrible woman, Jezebel, who, because she has pagan gods, forces these pagan gods on him and just forces them on Israel because of her, I don't to submit to him, all kinds of things. But is that not how we hear about Jezebel? Yeah. Yeah. When you read Second Kings, you're not going to find any of that. That doesn't happen at all. So why they tell us this, I don't know. I can't even begin to imagine how come this narrative ever comes into play. But Jezebel is not a good person. Don't get me wrong. I have no justification for her. She's not even Israel. I have no investment in redeeming her. But as an Israelite, as a sister, uh, I have a responsibility to the truth, and yet that didn't happen. That's not even in the text. Ahab, because, you know, we discussed earlier that Israel split, right? You find the Kings, because we talk about the, the fact that it's more than one split. You find that out by reading Kings. You find out before there's a north, before the kingdom splits into north and south, it's split because David went into exile. He's king. He's crowned king of Hebron and, and Judah defects. So Israel is necessarily split, but you find this out by reading Kings uh, or by reading these these First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings. When you start reading those um, double volume books in the Old Testament, so David defects into Hebron. He takes Judah. Judah goes with him. He doesn't take Judah. Judah defects on their own and crowns him king and effectively splits the kingdom. The kingdom isn't taken from David. It's not taken from Solomon. It's taken from Solomon's son, and it becomes two kingdoms again. It becomes two kingdoms because Solomon has all of these lovers, and he becomes, you know, he wants to worship their god. And instead of punishing Solomon, most of the for your, for, your, for your father's sake, I'm going to take it from your son instead. So then we have Jehoram and Jehoram. Jehoram, Jehoram, something like that. And um, one becomes king over the southern kingdom, the other becomes king over the northern kingdom because of sin, because of the fact that there is this turning away that Solomon does to the Most High. So the northern kingdom is supposed to defect from this disobedience, right? Solomon has introduced all these horrible things to the northern kingdom. Is supposed to turn away from that, and it gets reestablished under Ephraim. Ephraim immediately, immediately turns to to, to other to um, other guys. First king, the first king, the first Ephraimite king of the northern kingdom decides that he's so jealous and so insecure about his leadership that he's afraid that when Israel goes to Jerusalem to partake of the, the ritual feast that we have to partake of, and Jerusalem is where our temple is, 
He's so insecure about that pilgrimage that he immediately erects two golden calves. Seriously, like, did you not read Exodus? Yes, this guy sees two golden calves and says, these are your gods. The first king. Ahab is the seventh king of the northern kingdom. According to scripture, when you read these scriptures, he says the same thing. He does, it's Ahab, what does it go? It goes Jeroboam, then it goes Hesphon, which is Nabot, and then from Nabot is Basha, from Basha is Zimri, from Zimri, then Basha, then Zimri, then Zimri, then Omari, then Omari, and then Ahab. And all of them, all of them, pagan God, pagan God, pagan God, pagan God, pagan God. When you get to Ahab, the scripture literally says, as if it were not a light thing, that he was already off. He goes and marries Jezebel. Jezebel introduces nothing. Ahab is not a soft king. Ahab is a preacher. He's a loser. That's what happened. It happened because he was a loser, not because he was soft. He already was serving other gods and decided to add to them. But you find this out when you read, um, and I say all that to say this, you find that out when you read these sacred texts, and that's why it's important for us to go into them. It's important for us to examine our ancestors and be honest about that because we fall into a pattern where we do a type of ancestor worship. It's like David can do no work. I'm very hard on David. People hate that. Oh, my God, you can't talk about David like that. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. I talk about David anyway I want to, Abraham too. All these these ancestors are subject to being understood in a in a in a human way because we can't deify them, we can't ancestor worship them. We need to understand them so we can learn what we need to learn from them. We can duplicate what we're supposed to duplicate and completely avoid the things we're supposed to avoid. That's why we're having these types of lessons now. Because we can't look at these people and say, okay, look, we can't challenge them. Those are the taste stuff. They can do no wrong. They did a lot of wrong. They did a lot of wrong a lot of the time. What makes them so incredible is they later get redeemed. They later say, okay, that was bad. This was a mistake. If not for the most high, I could not have gone. That's the lesson we're supposed to learn. David is the message David. The message David makes all kinds of errors. It's not until he messes up with Bathsheba that he goes back and is a redeemable person. He's sorry. I should not have done that. Most I forgive me. This is when David is good to us again. This is when we can look at David and say, yeah, some of that. But while David is running around being selfish, while David is running around thinking only about um, himself and what he can accomplish, he gets Bathsheba while everybody else is at war. He says, everybody to war. He's by himself at the king while all of his soldiers are at war. And he's walking around the top of his, his castle and he can see um, Bathsheba doing her ritual bathing. Cause she's like, it looks, according to scripture, it's after she's unclean and she's doing her ritual bathing. Which is what she's supposed to do. He is supposed to be at war. That's how David gets understood as king. This is all that time he was actively involved. When we went to war, he went to war. He wasn't sending people off to fight while he chilled back at home. He didn't do that before. 
but he got comfortable. And then this is how he gets um, in the situation with Bathsheba. But, um, okay, so the other thing having to do with David that we tend to get um, confronted with when we're talking about David and polygamy and the idea that the fact that David had several wives was probably okay. Like the Most High is totally cool with that. The scripture you usually hear is Second Samuel 12 and 8. Does anybody have Second Samuel 12 and 8? If you don't, I'll read it to you. Second Samuel 12, 8 says, And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such thing. Now, when you heard that, what did you hear? Do you mind repeating it? No problem. I, I, I really appreciate that you asked me to do that. Absolutely. Second Samuel, 12th chapter, 8th verse, King James Version. And I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives unto my bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such thing. What was your question again? What do you get from that verse? What do you What do you hear the Most High saying to David? Well, regarding polygamy, he came in with a gift of wives and authority over these territories already. So it's kind of part of the package. So it sounds like the Most High is giving. So it, where it says, okay, I like this. Whomever saying this, says it is part of the package. It's interesting that when Second Samuel twelve and eight is discussed in other arenas, specifically when um, uh, polygamous-minded persons are advocating for this paradigm in modernity. This scripture is used to say, you see the Most High is saying that I gave you your master, his master's wives, and I would have given you more. I mean, like, it, so it sounds like that he had wives. He had, the Most High gave him Saul's wives, so the master's wives would be Saul's wives. I gave you Saul's wives, and I would have given you more. So there's really no reason for you to have gone and taken this guy's wife, because the wives is all you need. I would have given you more. I mean, no. it's interesting to me because that's not what this verse says. In so many ways, that's not what this verse is saying. Yeah, he got he got wives. He got to be like a like, I don't know what it is. right. He got, he, leadership. Right. I mean, there's like it's a package deal. You got this, 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 and this. So exactly, it's a list. It's literally a list of things. This is not a conversation about David having women. This is not a conversation about David's wives. This is not about giving David any women at all in so many ways because it's a list. First of all, it's because of the list. I gave you your master's house once. 
I gave you your master's wife. I gave your master's wife into your care. Pay attention to that. I gave your master's wife into your care. Two, I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. Wait, and if that had been too little, I would have added many more things. I would have added such and such things. It's a responsibility list, almost. It's a list of things. The most I say, I have given you so much. Why did you take from this man? This is not about I would have given you more women. It's like, yo, dude, if you are not satisfied with all of this stuff, I would have given you other things. I would have given you such and such things. And what the most high meant was I would have given you more women. He would have said that, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say I would have given you more women. He said I would have given you such and such things. Like you name it, fill in the book. I would have given it to you. Let me take from it. What, what David does is not only, yes, he commits adultery. He's stealing. He's stealing from someone else. The reason, we'll talk, I think that we should probably do a lesson on, on David and all the reasons why, because uh, I know that there was a sister that once asked me, why did the child have to die? What was the point of killing the child? And um, all that does merit having um, its own conversation. I would love to have that discussion with you guys about this, but uh, with you sisters, about um, David and Bathsheba, because I think that's another account that is very often misrepresented and misunderstood. But specifically talking about this verse, another thing we want to look at, since the focus here is the idea that the Most High gave him his master's wife, his master's wives unto his bosom, right? Let's look at that. Who would have been his master? Who's the master that uh, is being spoken of in this verse? Whose wives? Was it? I'm sorry. Who? Was it the king before him. The king before him. Right. So ideally, this is supposed to be um, Saul's family. Saul's, he gets Saul's wife. Now, does it make sense that the Most High would give David somebody else's wife? First of all, does that make sense? Why would David inherit his wife? Um, Why would David be given this man's wife? This, this, now, we know who David married. We have a list of is David's Saul, wives. Is Saul alive? Is Saul alive here? Huh? Is Saul alive or dead? No, Saul is dead. Okay, well, could that be it? You know, the law of the lever means that according to the law of the lever, the wife has the right to someone of his, their kin. Saul is not even from the same branch as David, let alone the same family. So is Benjamin. His widow would not go to Judah. Right, right. I don't know then. Tell what if what if examine together, I don't know. Who is who is David's first wife? Do we remember who David's first wife is? Mikhail. Mikhail, exactly. So who would be her mother? Um Saul's wife. Saul's wife. Do we know anything about the law at this point? 
You don't think he took his concubines? Who? You don't think that David was giving Saul's concubines? No. Why would he be giving his concubines? Do you remember when Solomon's son, um, brother came to him and said, can I have my father's concubine? And Solomon yeah. said, oh, you want the concubine so, and you want the, the king's chair too? Exactly. Exactly. But Solomon, but David, remember the difference is that David doesn't need to marry into Saul's family, doesn't need to have Saul's concubines to be a legitimate um, heir. Number one, he has the most high. Number two, he's married to the only living relative of Saul. He's married to Micah. He's already understood. The reason that like, in that conversation between David and David's son is that the other one doesn't have a, a clear, doesn't have a clear um, claim to the throne. So he tries to do some backdoor thing, and by marrying uh, into this one of Saul, one of David's women, he can make that claim, or he could assert some sort of claim. That's how Solomon is interpreting that. Solomon is like, you're trying to take on something that belongs to my father in order to to challenge the seat. But David doesn't need to do that. David doesn't have to do it. David is already married to Saul's daughter. That, that That's not a tactic that's necessary for David. No one inherited David's concubines. David, David's concubines don't get inherited. In fact, one of his sons, one of his sons is um, told, I think by Bathsheba's grandpa, suddenly that David uh, knows Bathsheba very well because he is very familiar with practically everybody in her, in her family, which is all the more reason why the fact that he defiled her in this way is so horrible because it's not like he didn't know her and know her intimately. He knew her brother, her father, her husband, and her grandfather. So defiling her was just an amazing thing to me. But one of David's advisors, and I believe it's Bathsheba's grandfather, tells his son, so one of the sons goes to usurp David's throne. And he takes Tells him to go to the to the roof and have sex with all her concubines as an amazing affront to David to to assert the fact that he's taking over the throne. He is to defile all of these concubines, and this is what he does. He goes and does it in broad daylight. He does it outside with these concubines. Are these the concubines that get shut away? And they, they have to live like widows for the rest of their lives? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. David, domestic David is really messed up. His whole domestic life is just played with all kinds of, if it can go wrong, it goes wrong. Everything gets kind of played back and revisited on his domestic life, even though he's very successful as a king and as a warrior, and um, eventually he gets redeemed as um, as a, as a servant and a son, and we fall in love with him again through his psalms and through that that redemptive journey that he takes after he's basically smelling himself with 
these eight women or the ten concubines and all that nonsense that happens first. The the reason why the father loved David like he did, and, and we can say whatever we want about David, the, David always repented. When he, that wasn't right. He repented. This is the lesson we should take away from David, is okay. that when we do something wrong, because the Father still works with us. When we do yeah. something wrong, no matter how bad it is, and you repent, that doesn't mean you're not going to get your behind beat. You're still going to get your behind beat. And David got his behind beat even yeah. still. But you repent regardless of the fact. And you don't do that thing again. And the Father has always said throughout scriptures, come back, repent, right. come right. back, repent. Agreed. Agreed. That's what, and that's what I said, is it, um, that despite going through all of that, we fall in love with him against it with his own. We, he goes out and he uh, repents and he is sorry and he asks for forgiveness. After that incident with Bathsheba, he doesn't return to that kind of um of that type of thing. He's, he becomes redeemed from that. And like I said, we fall in love with him again. And he goes back to being who the most high saw. Because we, we hear often that, okay, well, David was um, after the most high's own heart. Like he's the guy that's after the most high's own heart. The most high does say that about David. When David's, what, 15 years old before he becomes king before he does all these nonsensical things, before he starts filling himself and before he needs to repent at the end. So it's not that he, yeah, he was uh, after the most high on heart. That's why he got to get, he got to go to the places that he got to go to and, and met the heights that he did because originally he had that servant's heart. Originally he was, Concerned with righteousness, concerned with the most high, concerned with all the right things. So much so that when you go and you read Kings, the reason he doesn't marry Merab is because he's he's not into it. He's not. He doesn't feel like he's worthy. Like, is it a light thing? I should become the son-in-law to the king? Maybe I don't need that. He marries the princess. He he shuts down the opportunity to marry into the royal family because he's not about that life. He's like, that's not what I need. I just want to be a good soldier. I just want to do what the most I want to do. I just want to be down here with Israel. He wanted to be in the churches for his people. He wanted to do the right thing. He was not about being royal nothing. He didn't want to be. It isn't a right thing. But I should become son of love to the king. That was David's mentality when David was a man after the most high's own heart. Even when Micah came through and was like, yo, she's really feeling David. And she couldn't even keep it a secret. The way that her father found out is that her servants were talking about it. She liked David. She was feeling David. David wasn't paying her any mind. Saul didn't even know about it. But Micah couldn't keep, you know, she couldn't hide how much she wanted to be with David. And so use that as an opportunity. So he sent the servant to go fill out David and how David would feel about that. And David said to him the same thing he said when it came to Mela. It's a big thing. That I should wait, you understand what you're saying to me. Why? This is a princess. You're asking me basically to be a prince. I'm a soldier. Do you really understand what the implications 
listen to what you're saying. He that David's mindset when he was a man after the most high's own heart. One thing about that situation I found interesting with David, the first daughter he was trying to give him, David said something really interesting, and it goes back to covenants and marriage covenants and what was required to have before you become a, a woman's um, husband. David said, I am a poor man. Mm-hmm. Family, basically, they don't have the esteem that your family has. Right. It's a light thing that I should become the king's son-in-law. Right. Because those things is, is key. It is very key to why David probably didn't want to become, you know, was having a problem with becoming the son-in-law of a king. He had nothing really to give his daughter. Right. He came to the table with nothing. And we know, we understand Hebrew culture, in order to become... You you have to have certain things. You come to the the father, and you present your contract, and you also have gifts. Right. Also have a certain degree of, um, especially if you're a king, you're going to a king's daughter, you have to have a certain degree of respect from other people and certain kind of, um, what is it, um, it, it's like going to the president's daughter and you working in the um as a garbage man. How can I be the king's son-in-law if I'm working as a garbage man? He he wasn't he didn't see himself as being a noble man. That is what I'm see, and, and that's what I'm trying to that's what I want to impress upon um this conversation is that at that point at that point this is when this is when the statement he was a man after the most high um, most highest heart is made. It's not made in Hebron. It's not made while he's conquering. So if he's a man after the most high heart at this point, when he's a shepherd, when his brothers are old enough to go to war, but he's not, when he over his onesies with nothing but a slingshot takes down to the lion's this is when he is a man after the most high's own heart. He's a child, not even old enough to go to war, and this is the mentality that he has. He's humble. He's aware. The culture is important to him. He understands who he is and what his station is, and his aspirations are to be a good man, a humble man, an on-point man. Yep. He wants to do right. His, everything in his mind, everything that's on his plate has to do with the Most High. He's happy for the Most High, and that's it. And that's it. Now, now, Oni is making all of these perfectly important parts, all the points that we have tried to impress upon you when we do our marriage discussions about what you should look for, what you should expect, what the culture expects to into marriage unions and how marriages are constructed to begin with. We forget it for polygamy. To create the first marriage, all these other criteria have to be in place. But what's unique about David's situation and what makes the fact that he still says is a light thing is the fact that he doesn't have to come with anything to the table to get married. Why? Because she was part of the contract. She, 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 he, she was his reward. 
We're talking about the um, pagan institution of kings. The pagan institution of kings very commonly, as part of a contract, don't want a princess. We're cool. I'm a king. You're a king. We're cool. We got a contract. Listen, I'm a sweeten the deer on the one one of my daughters. That's what kings did. Yeah. Why are kings sweetening the deal? They threw in one of their daughters. Saul and David had a deal. Saul killed Goliath. You win, Merit. It's not about that life. That's not what he wanted to do. No. That's not how he he understood culture. He under he was not he he didn't sign up to this. That you want to wash your hands. But anyway, so that's that's David. This is why the idea that the Most High was behind um, supported David accumulating all of these women. And using Second Samuel twelve and eight. Why Second Samuel twelve and eight doesn't make that case for you. Second Samuel. 12 and 8 is not discussing the Most High would have given David more wives. It doesn't even say that. I would have given you such and such things. He's making a list of all of the things he's already given David. He's not saying he would have doubled up on any one of the previous items. He's saying he would have added more. I would have given you such and such things. I would have given you fill in the blank. Things. I would have given you what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. That's what such and such things mean. That's what the book says. There's no reason to walk away with some other narrative when that's not what the book says. And we already know that when this verse says that I would have given you and I gave you your ma- your master's wife, he's not talking about There's no way they married someone's um, wife. Number one, we know who his wives were. We know them by name. Married in Hebron, Samuel gives us the first names of who their fathers were and who their husbands were and who they are, where they came from, everything. The detail is amazing on who the six women are in Hebron. And then there is Micah and Sheba, that's eight. Now, will you guys go over these um verses for yourself? What you will find is that one of his wives does have the same name as um Saul's wife, but she's not the daughter of. They tell you who she's the daughter of, and she tells you uh, where she comes from. So she's not the same person. She just has the same name, but she's not. Saul's wife. She's somebody else's daughter. She's somebody completely different. I think it's the, it's the one that's um, I think it's Maaka, the witch. When we were talking about it earlier, I think it's the one that's or it's Ahim. It's one of those two. But it's the story isn't the same woman. And when you look into it on your own, you'll find that that's the case. And you know, add to that the fact that the law explicitly forbid doing that, you know, under pains of being set on fire. So I'm going to say that didn't happen. Anyway, our final question is Solomon. Famous. 
there's some argument about this. Obviously, Solomon partook in polygamy. Some argument about that. That definitely happened. And it happened under the fourth cultural criteria of taking the institution of kings. We also know that a lot of um, marriages were contract marriages. Do we know how we know that he married for contract reasons? Do we have any examples of him marrying under those conditions? I'm I'm sorry. What was your question again? How do we know that Solomon, at least some of Solomon's marriages were contract marriages? You mean to like treaties to other kings? Right. Well, that first one he married um, Pharaoh's daughter. Right. He married Pharaoh's daughter in First Kings, the third chapter. He marries. Daughter. Now, we know how Hebrew relationships are formed. We know how we make covenants. We know how we do marriages. But Solomon, let's see, in First Kings, third chapter, first verse, it says, And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Affinity is made nice. He played nice, nice. So affinity is something that's good. He made a contract with them. He gets into an alliance with the Pharaoh. King of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her to the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. So and first Kings third chapter, first verse, we find that his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter follows him creating a contract with the Pharaoh, coming into an alliance, having a peace agreement, having a treaty with this other nation, this nation of Egypt. What we know about now, why that's important and why that's interesting, why we should pay attention to that. David is a man of war. His whole reign is is fraught with war. Like, he doesn't have a peaceful moment. Somebody always wants to fight during David's reign. And then, you know, domestic David has issues on on the home front. Like, David doesn't really get any shalom at all. Like, shalom is not for him. But Solomon notoriously has a very peaceful reign. Solomon doesn't have, nobody has beef for Solomon. Solomon has married some of everybody. There's a peace contract here. There's a peace contract there. He has trade agreements because he has locked down trade routes. Solomon is about his business. Solomon has to, there are all the, all the, um, the past, all the routes for trade, for spices and all the things that other nations would need. Solomon has locked that down. So if you want to be able to do any kind of business, you have to go through Solomon. You do not want to have beef with Solomon. That's how things are going down at the time of, of Solomon and Solomon's reign. That's how it might be because David has done a lot of fighting. So 
Solomon inherits a lot inherits a lot of the benefits of those of that kind of of all the warfare that his father has gone through. It's like you have your father who goes and fights the battles, and all you pretty much have to do is get the reward for that because the battle has already been fought. So Solomon doesn't have any fighting to do. And all these people who want to do business want to do business with Solomon, and they don't want any beef for Israel. They really don't want a problem. So they come to Solomon. They make treaties with Solomon. There are the affinities and alliances with Solomon. And, yeah, like we talked about before, I'm a king, you're a king. We have an agreement with Solomon's daughter. And that's how um, pagan nations did business. You Even if you don't know anything about history, even if you don't know anything about these scriptures, if you watch just historical shows, if you watch um, historical movies, if you have seen how kings interacted with each other, that's what they did. And there was a reason for it. There's a practical reason why kings would say, I'm going to make this agreement with you. Not only are we going to put it in writing, but I'm going to throw in my daughter. Can anybody figure out why they would throw in their daughter? I mean, it sounds terrible, right? It's like, okay, she's not a commodity. Like, you're just throwing, she's not an extra cow. She's daughter. But do you have any idea why a king would want to do that? Is it a bonding to the families, like the families uniting? Exactly. Very good. Very good. Of course. Of course. Because you are less likely to betray me if you're famous. You're you're less likely if you have my daughter. If you're my my business partner, maybe. Maybe you'll betray me. Maybe you won't. But if you are my son-in-law, you're less likely as family. You're not going to be, you're less likely to be trained as family. Especially if there's children. If my daughter bears your your child, I mean, all the ideas of the potential of us becoming connected by blood is is different. That's more than a paper pack, more than a contract, more than then, you know, this again, paper, more than this paper contract between you and I. We have a blood tie now. We have a blood bond. You have someone that is a blood relative of mine entering into a blood covenant with you. And, and that's I just want to add something, too, because you touched on something that's really important. Um, remember when we said, Back before, when we established marital covenants and contracts, that you're not just bringing together a man and woman, you're bringing together families. So when you're bringing together families in a marital situation, each family is supposed to have the other family's interest at heart. So these people understood that if I get into a, give you my daughter, we get into a contract together you're going to have my best interest at heart. And like Mayana said, you're going to be less likely to um, to go against me. So they did understand these marital contracts. I agree. I don't have anything else to add to that. That was our 10th 
point. So we did one through ten. We completed um, our first session. So um, unless anybody has any questions, we did our polygamy appeals to past precedents. One through ten is completed. Um, are we good? Do we have any questions? I don't have any questions right now. Okay. If anybody doesn't have any questions right now um, or is uncomfortable asking questions while we're recording, you can always go back to our forum and ask me there. That's fine. You can always, if it, or if it pops in your head later. Um, oh, I love this. Someone said that they have was already wicked. I really wish I had this open with Tarswater. You guys are so on point in the chat room. Good job. Um, so let's, if there's anything you guys want to talk about right, right now, we can always talk about it in the forum and kind of give our shaloms now. Shalom. Oh, okay, good then. Shalom, everybody. Shalom. 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 <laughs>